Welcome to episode 299B of No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. First, a quick programming note. We've now uploaded all three parts of our mega mailbag episode to the NCR Patreon page. It's nearly four hours of Courtney and myself answering all your questions. We didn't have a show on this main feed for the last couple weeks, but there's lots of good stuff. Nearly four hours of the mailbag episode that you can find over there at patreon.com slash no challenges remaining. On this week's new main episode, I'm happy to bring you the first in-person interview I've done for NCR in a long, long time. Gosh, since probably February 2020. This one is with another Washington area native who happens to be one of the founding fathers of professional tennis, Donald Dell, who was a tennis Hall of Fame enshrinee in 2009 as a contributor. So many of the conversations we've had uh, since the pandemic began about possible structural changes to the sport, like an ATP WTA merge or an independent unionish players association like the PTPA, uh, those sorts of conversations require an understanding of the history of pro tennis and how it got to be entrenched the way it has become. And no living person arguably was more involved in that history and making tennis the way it is than Donald Dell. Now 82, Dell remains engaged on the issues of the tour and is still actively working in some of the sports TV rights landscape, and he has thoughts about all the current issues of the day in tennis as they are. Here's my chat with Donald from earlier this week near D.C. Enjoy. Very excited to be joined here by Donald Dell, tennis Hall of Famer and one of the founding fathers, I think it's fair to say, of the professional sport of tennis as we know it. Donald, thank you for being up for chatting today. It's a pleasure, Ben. So there's been a lot of talk in the last year, I think, especially as the tour stopped due to the pandemic, of looking at the structure of the sport and wondering if things could or should be different. And I guess in some of that, explaining, trying to explain to people why things are the way they are. And, and you had a front row seat or a driver's seat even in sort of building the tour and the structure of it as it is today. And I'm curious if you can just sort of give people a bit of a history lesson, I guess, on, on walking through how certain things came to be the way they are in the sport. Uh, I guess let's start with, how about one thing that's come up, let's start with this, the idea that the this has happened relatively recently in 1990, so in the grand scope of things, about halfway through the mm-hmm. pro history of the tour, of the uh, tour tournaments and the players being under one umbrella organization, the ATP and WTA now also uh, sort of sharing the table. How, how did that come to be and how, was that how the sport started or how did it kind of wind up in that what happened middle ground? Was- what happened at the game of tennis, as you know, went open in 68. Pros and amateurs could play for prize money. In 1972, Jack Kramer, who's my great friend and hero, really, in the sport, we decided we really should try to get the players to have more say in the, in the new promotion, the new pro game, basically, because the federations controlled everything. And for many years, they didn't want any prize money and they didn't want the amateurs playing with the pros. Right. So we started a players-only union in 1972. There was the Wimbledon boycott in 73 that really solidified the ATP as a, as a strong force because 70 players withdrew from Wimbledon, so they had skin in the game, and they yeah. really made it a viable group. When Nicky Pillich was not that allowed was to play, right? That was the Pillich right? case. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The issue was Pillich did not play Yugoslavia, Davis Cup for Yugoslavia. And the, their captain was furious that he didn't play and said, don't accept his entry at Wimbledon. 
from the ITF point of view, Wimbledon agreed. And the player said, wait a minute, he, he's a pro. He doesn't have to play Davis Cup. He, we, we thought he should play Davis Cup and be nationalistic. So we argued that they, if they didn't accept Pillage, we weren't going to play. We sued in court in England and lost badly. We got killed mm-hmm. in the press. And, uh, but 70 players, they made the draw with the players in it. They didn't believe, it. They didn't believe us. Yeah. So then the, the players pulled out. And that really was leadership through Cliff Drysdale and John Newcomb, Arthur Ashe, Dan Smith. I mean, you had a board of players that really mattered and with strong character. So fast forward to 1989, uh, Hamilton Jordan was now the executive director of the players. Uh, association. It was still players only. We got into a battle uh, with the USTA over the US Open, and Hamilton had a wholly different idea. He said, look, let's just start our own tour. Let's have a, a, a pros, a player tour. And uh, he came out of Pontevedra, so he knew everything about the PGA Tour mm. in golf. So he really followed that model pretty carefully. And the model is you'd have three tournament directors from all over the world selected, three player representatives, and then the chairman of the board would be the casting vote. So it's a, and that's what happened. So starting in 1990, uh, the ATP went out and found six, eight, ten tournaments, and then very quickly all the tournaments came over except the slams. The, yeah. grand, the four grand slams stayed out of it. So what was the, the, the occasion was that now you have a partnership. It's not a players only. You have a partnership between the tournaments and the players, if it's 3-3, the casting vote goes to the chairman. The problem with that is that, like Congress, these groups have now become voting blocks. Yeah. You know, the idea is it's always now 3-3. If there's a big issue, the players, you know, want one thing. And if you thought about it for a moment, they want different interests. I mean, the tournaments, they want the best players for less prize money. The players want more prize money and less obligations for it. Yeah. So there's a basic uh, inequity there. Uh, or Basic uh, tension, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Fr- fr- friction and, and tension. And lately, uh, if you get really good representatives on both sides, it works. If you don't, it doesn't. It's the same thing in Congress now where you're paralyzed and nothing happens. But I think uh, the new chairman, uh, Gaudenzi from Italy, I don't know him personally. I just talked to him once. But I think, I think he's a very bright guy. He played the circuit, was probably ranked in the top 75 or 80. He then went to law school, then he went to business school, and he was practicing, uh, doing a lot of stuff in television and uh, media before he became president. So, I'm, as I say, I'm not close to him, but I'm told he's very good. He's got some avant-garde ideas and things. And one of the things he's sort of talking about with Steve Simon of the WTA is wouldn't it be better to merge sure. the two, the, the men and the women, and you'd have twice the exposure, twice the promotion, half the costs in theory, and a much stronger hand when you're dealing with other problems in the game or the four Grand Slams who are not part of the tour. Yeah. And the problem with that is in concept, it's a very good idea. But to implement and execute it, it's very difficult because you got, you know, we used to always call it the alphabet soup game because the problem you have the ATP, the WTA, the Grand Slams, the ITF, and, and all these different offshoots of different groups. So you have about seven major yeah. groups. You have the IMG and the agents, they're very involved. Now you have a, a new splinter, there's a new thing. Djokovic is trying to start a new pro, to, a new pro association, right. but play in the same tour. So 
everybody's protecting his turf, and that really slows down the growth. The, the biggest single problem, in my judgment, that tennis has is how do you make it more rep, representation of it in America, what it is in the world? You go outside of America in television. Let, let's stop and, and understand television makes the world of sport go round. Yeah. If you don't have television, you don't have much, you know. All these new leagues in soccer and lacrosse, they're battling for television exposure. Outside of America, in almost every country, tennis is two or three. Soccer's king, and they're one, in exposure and media and promotion. And two is often tennis, or occasionally there'll be basketball in Italy or Hong Kong, and tennis will drop to three. But they're always in the top three. From By that, I mean from the number of followers, from the number of hours of broadcast and promotion. Yeah. Then you flip to America, and we're probably 9, 10, or 11. Take your pick. And so the trick to making the sport a bigger and better and more important sport, you've got to get better uh, coverage and promotion in America. And that's not easy to no. do because you've got a lot of great other sports here. Yeah. And they're all fighting for television Exactly. Well. I, I know that I was talking to you before we started just about even just sort of fighting for space in the New York Times sports section, very aware of of that sort of priority for tennis and the amount of competition there is and how much it matters, you know, if there's a year when the Super Bowl overlaps with the Australian Open final or things like that. There's a lot of different things that other sports that can not just step on your toes, sure. but, but stomp on your toes. You, you talked about a bunch of different stuff you touched on that first answer. I want to go back to what you were saying about when the tournaments came on board with the ATP in the early 90s um, and sort of unified the men's <laughs> tour around there, except that the Grand Slams stayed off of that, which I think which has lasted as a sort of, you know, separate separation, sometimes refer to it on the podcast. It's like the seven kingdoms of tennis. You know, you have the four Grand Slams and the <laughs> ATP and the WTA and the ITF, each being very territorial over their, their part of the, the land. Sure. And was there a moment where that could have been more unified? Was there a missed opportunity at some point in that early 90s consolidation moment that was, that was missed? Or was that just never going to be a possibility to really bring that all under one roof? Well, I think a couple things. One... Hamilton got into this fight in late 1989, and he started the tour in 1990. Uh, but at that stage in 1990, the women's side of the game was not that developed. It was not that powerful. So he didn't think of them as a partner. That's all changed today. And what, what's really occurred, I think, uh, for example, take the Washington tournament, our city open. Yeah. You know, we had a men's tournament only for 42 years. And then suddenly... I got a sponsor here named Citibank, and they said, you know, 51% of my clients are women. So we won a women's tournament. Well, the only date we had was a date that conflicted with Stanford, where they had a higher price tournament, seven, what they called the 700 premium. We had a 250 for women, and we could only allow so much prize money. But my God, we have to negotiate every year with the ATP in order to allow the women to integrate with yeah. one tournament. And as you know very well, the ATP was always saying we want the prior courts for practice. We want better transportation. We want better hotels. And we want to control the center court schedule. So the women were really in a secondary position yeah. uh, by contract, not, not by any other design. But that was the only way we could get a sanctioned uh, co-ed event. And I, what I found out in, in quick five or six years is the women were very popular. Yeah. And in a lot of ways, the women really implement the men. If you have a couple of bad matches in the men, you can have a great field in the women. So it really balances from a tournament promoter point of view. It's a heck of a lot better to have yeah. both. 
Uh, but of course, then you go back and you say, honestly, 10 or 15% of the Players Association, the men, there's always a hard core of 10 or 15 and say, we don't want co-ed tournaments. We want men only. We want more jobs. We want, you know. So there's always this push-pull. Yeah. But there was a time, uh, I would say, I'm trying to get the date right, probably around 2010, uh, Larry Scott, and they, they were looking for a new uh, executive director of the Women's Tennis Association, a guy to run it. And Larry would have been ideal because he had been the number two guy uh, in the ATP for many, many years for Mark Miles, who had ran, ran it as the chairman yeah. of the men. And so he said, I'm delighted to come over and be involved and run the women, but I want it integrated with the men. So we have one body. Uh, and he was very strong on that. And it got nowhere. I mean, yeah. he couldn't get the votes. And so the next thing you knew, he took the job as the commissioner, really, of the Pac-12. And, and in effect, got out of tennis. Yeah. And, and that's where he is today as a commissioner out there. So it fell then. Today, look, it all comes back at the end of the day to people. You know, if a Roger Federer and a Djokovic and a Murray and a Nadal, if they, if they want to move in one direction, it's going to move the others. It takes real leadership at the top to yeah. want to do this. And, and Federer did put his sort of throw his support behind the idea of a merger in the last year. Sure. Um, so we'll see where, that, but still, I think still obviously a lot of obstacles and a lot of other parts and minds and, and you know, structure to change. Well, on, the trick though route. here is Galdenzi and Steve Simon of the WTA yeah. have sort of indicated they're in favor of yeah. both have said, let's do it. But then when you get around to implementing it yeah. and you got to fight all different battles internally. That's the only there, there have been, there have been, I, I know, I know there's, there have been small steps in terms of cooperation that people probably don't even notice, like uh, certain, you know, news articles being posted to both tours websites or things right. like that, which sounds incredibly minor and, and meaningless, honestly, but knowing how, how fractured they were, that's actually like an incredibly robust olive branch in some, in some stretches there. And I also think on the women's computer rankings. They're trying to move more towards the men's computer ranking. Hmm. They were they had totally different mathematical formulas, yeah. and I think the women now are quietly trying to uh, simplify that and cu- carry. Yeah. And they're changing the names of their tournaments too to be a thousand and five hundred, like the like the men. Exactly, it's a for, very good point. Which is good for clarity. Yeah. So yeah. in in the in the seventies, I guess when the men's association started in seventy two. Um, as player association at that point, not with the tournaments. Uh, was there a thought of having the women? I know Billie Jean King has talked about this, saying that she wished that the women had been included in that, and they would. She said that you know they would have supported the Nikki Pillage boycott if anyone had asked them to. Why? Why do you think the women were were left behind at that point? Because that's sort of well, I don't a pretty think, early seed in the. Uh, sadly, yeah. I don't think the women. It was a question of being left behind. I don't think they. I don't think the men thought of doing that. Women yeah. primarily. Because the women weren't that strong. Now, Billie Jean. What do you mean? What do you mean by not that strong? Uh, as a as a player association, one they were just getting off. They hadn't, you know, the original nine was not a player association. Yeah. The and they didn't have as many uh, strong leaderships, in my opinion. I mean, Billie Jean is phenomenal in the sense that she's a real leader and, and she inspires people. People follow her. But in those days, I don't think it really was. You know, we were struggling just to get a, a, a you know. In 72, when we started Players Only, we, we were charging the players a, a fee to join. And there are a lot of political problems. Players, some players, I don't want to have like What I want to be in, Jimmy Connor said, I'm never going to be in the union. And he stayed out of it. You know, and so we had enough internal problems that we weren't thinking about how are we going to also join the women who in, in 72 really didn't have a union at all. I mean, Billie Jean was starting to really force 
to have women's tournaments and women's prize money, which grew like topsy, and it was terrific. But when we started the men, there, there wasn't any really viable push to get them together. Okay. You're, you were mentioning the, the separation of the, of the slams, and I know you're still active in working in TV rights deals and mm-hmm. things of like that. Can, can you explain from that sort of side of things, if tennis, like capital T tennis, was all available to buy the rights for as one fell package where you got all four slams and the, and the, and the tours, both tours, as one sort of item and you want to throw a Fed Cup and Davis Cup in there mm-hmm. too. How different would that make things? I mean, you're working right now with French Open rights, which mm-hmm. is sort of a, a one sort of one of the seven kingdoms in the French sure. in the French Federation. How different would that make it as a market, as a, as a sales proposition if you had that sort of robust thing? Because that's what, you know, the NBA can do. The NBA can sit down and offer all NBA games to a, to a network, uh, internationally or domestically. I think there's a couple things, Ben. Number one, you know, tennis is a global sport. Yeah. And you got to really say that over and over and over. When you talk about the NBA or the NFL and you say the Commissioner Goodell or Commissioner Silver, that's only running one little, that's less than a third of what tennis is. Because besides being in a minority position size-wise, the players are all now coming out of Europe much more than they were 20 years ago coming out of America. Mm-hmm. So that, that's a different problem. But the biggest problem, really in a funny way, the four Grand Slams, the Australian Open, the French Open, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open, they compete with each other. I mean, you know, Wimbledon says, we're the championships, we're the best, we're the biggest. And the, the uh, U.S. Open comes in and always gives more money. They look around and see what the others are doing, and then they give a little more prize money so they can say, well, we're the biggest tournament. They draw the most fans because they have the biggest stadiums. Yeah. So the first step is how do you cut down on that internal natural competition and it's very serious i mean they do compete with each other as you well know and so then the second step is to to answer your question if you ever could conceivably get the four slams together collectively to either negotiate not just television but all kinds of promotional scheduling if you had them all together you could sit in a room and say you know we may be here three days but we're not leaving till we have a world calendar that makes sense Right now, it's, you know, there are too many 250s in the men. There are, I don't know, 52 250s. I mean, that's a lot of scheduling, you know. And yeah. so you come Those tournaments don't make money. Yeah, yeah. and some, some of the weeks you have two or three of them the same week. And then so they go out and buy top, four top players, pay appearance fees. Well, those are big problems. But I, I do think there is, well, to answer your question, if you could do it, would it make the sport better? Yes, absolutely. In a lot of ways. Uh, and I think, I think eventually, again, it's going to come down to leadership. For example, we have a brand new president in the French Federation, a guy named Gilles Morton. He's played the city open. He played three mm-hmm. times when I was running it. So I know Gilles. He stayed at my home with mm-hmm. Yannick Noah. They were a doubles team. Okay. Uh, one of the things that happened the first year, he wanted to go out and ride one of my wife's horses. And my wife said, don't do that. You know, he said... <laughs> No, I said, we don't ride here much. And he really wanted to ride. He jumps on a horse, rides out there, falls. The horse throws him, <laughs> bruises his shoulder, and he had to default out of the city open and the and the and all the summer tournaments in the U.S. Open. Wow. So that's something I was talking to him the other day, and he brought that up. He said, I, I remember my shoulder. <laughs> so my, my point is, but he's a player. He's a young guy. His his group is Yannick Noah, Guy Forget, Michel Grosh. Those are the guys that, you know, that help promote the sport in France. And so he's going to be very outspoken 
and very advanced thinking. And then you flip it, Craig Tiley in Australia is exactly the same way. Then you come over to the two big ones, Wimbledon and the U.S. Open. And Wimbledon, you have a new guy, a new chairman, Ian Hewitt. He, this is his really first, last year he didn't, couldn't have the tournament. Right. So, and he's, you know, older and he's going to be protecting Wimbledon. And then you go to the U.S. Open and you have, again, a, a new CEO, Michael Drouse. And he's, I don't know where he is because it's all new. So I think you've got to see, you've got to get Wimbledon and the U.S. Open together if you're going to get the others. The others will follow, but you have to get those two together. Do you think that the slams have gotten too big? I mean, it seems like there's more and more and more players are defining their careers solely, like looking at Serena, for example. The really focus of her career has been just how many Grand Slams she's won or will win. Serena, just this morning, right before, you probably didn't see, just lost in the first round of the uh, Rome tournament, or the second round. I didn't see and, and so that was her first match, but the only tournament she's played since the Australian Open. Like she's, right. And she's really only playing Rome, which was, you know, it still is a big, you know, historic event with a lot of tradition and standing on its own. But she barely, you know, shows up outside of the slams because that's where that's the be all end all, and that's what defines right. her as a player. And I feel like that that at times, you know, I think the WTA as a tourist had to move on from her because she just doesn't show up anymore. But it it, it mm-hmm. creates some discontinuity and some. You see what's happened to tournaments like New Haven, which was the week before the U.S. Open. Uh, they just no players were willing to play, you know, with that big event right on the horizon. So they eventually, you know, faded out and, and went off the calendar. Um, do you think that that's a problem that the, the four Grand Slams are getting so big they swallow up the rest of things, no, or is that, it, is that is that a positive thing that have I think that it, consolidation? No, I, think it's a, I think it's a definite problem. You can argue it's great for the sport. You have tremendous four events, yeah. but they really dwarf the other, you know, fifty events. Yeah. And, and that is a problem. I think more and more the players say, how many slams do you want? 12, 14, 16. And that's the bench now. You know. But the thing that's interesting is that there ought to be a feed-in, a, a different kind of feed-in system, uh, like the relegation in Premier Soccer. I mean, there ought to be a way to make the tournaments. Think about that. If, if they had a system, for example, we're 500 now in Washington, and we've been that for about eight years. Well, we're going to fight if they take away our sanction for some reason and want to change it. So I, I do think I'm really off the target here. The slams are totally dominating the men's and women's game. Yeah. And before, when they were building up, you could say that was good. Now they're so dominant, you know, that some of the ATP executive directors have said, gee, you know, every time Murray says, I want to win that next slam, that hurts all my other tournaments. Yeah. yeah. And the players say it all the time, you know. It's just a way of, of framing things, too. And I guess sports writers, I'm sure, are, are culpable in this to the extent that we're responsible for it, which I'm not really sure we are. But, you know, back in the day, like Jimmy Connors or Martina Navratilova, people used to talk about their overall number of titles won. And they're in the hundred. They're over 100 somewhere right. for both of them. Right. And that was, a, that was a metric that mattered. And now it's really only about this, this slam count. And I think it's sets up a problem for the men especially, and the women too. But when you leave this generation where Serena's at 23 Rogers at 20, Nadal's at 20, probably going to get 21 right. in Paris soon. Djokovic is at 18. It's going to take a very long time for anybody else to register on that scale. You know, if, if I don't to pick a name, like Tsitsipas wins three Grand Slams, people will be like, well, that's, you know, three. It sounds kind of measly compared to the 20s that were put on the board exactly. before that. And you just sort of set the bar, uh, you know, impossibly high for, for people instead of finding other other ways I don't to, know to how celebrate that, that achievements. Part, you're right, but I don't know how you change it. It's I don't know either. really... Hard to change it because the, the four slams are putting up so much more money. Yeah. The television exposure is so much more dramatic and daily. So it's very hard to readjust that. Yeah. And 
re-scramble the egg, so to speak. I, yeah. I don't know how you're going to do that. One thing that uh, that was talked about in, in some of these conversations that Djokovic and other players have talked about, especially in the last decade, is about increasing the number of players who can make a viable living from playing tennis. Have you know, outside the top hundred, have people uh, have a higher, uh, more people above the whatever the break-even point would be in terms of prize money and things like that. Um, tennis has a lot of you know income disparity. I think it's very, very good at making the stars whose names we've just mentioned pretty much. You know, your Serena's, your, your big four on the men's side, um, and then there's a pretty steep drop off, I guess, outside of you know in terms of name recognition or money earning, even outside the top 20, let's say, uh, once you get that far compared to well, other, let's, other... Let's look okay. back at it for a moment. It's, yeah. it's, it's a very interesting question that everyone's raising. You know, what's how much can... Jack Kramer used to say to me, Dal, what do you think... How many players can the tour support? Yeah. And when we started in 72, probably it was going to be 100. Today, I, since I've been asked that question before, I've called three or four agents in the last six weeks. And generally, they come back. I'm saying, how many how many people do you think this tour can support in a viable way? Now that the number that so they've settled on is 300. That's just that's just two or three people's opinion. Mm-hmm. They say we can support 300. Well, let's pick that number. The ATP has 900 people on their computer. So if you're number 575, you know the question is. Are you young enough and good enough to try to win enough points to jump into that 300? Right. Or should you really get a job? Yeah. And, and you know, no, nobody wants to say that, but that's the reality. The other thing that people don't realize, tennis, unlike golf, tennis has an in, internal system where all of the players in these, on, the, on the tour get free meals, lunch and dinner, breakfast, mm-hmm. free hotel every week. So what's What's come in to take up these? I mean, that's about in Washington. That's about a six to seven hundred thousand dollar expense. Hmm. That's a built-in expense that nobody thinks about, yeah. Except a tournament promoter, right? But when you really think that through, the the, the t- tennis players that are on the tour have a great job and have a great deal, in my opinion, because the prize money it's like, it's like they have no daily living costs, and the prize money is all gravy. But what's happened is that the better players now have a coach. You know, I was reading the other day. Physiotherapist. And yeah, I was reading the other day uh, a lady named Daniel Collins, I think, from yeah, Daniel Collins, Virginia. Sure. And I, you know, I was sort of interested, and she was saying, well, you know, I can't afford to play the tour and have a trainer, a hitting partner, a coach. And I thought to myself, can you imagine Pancho Gonzalez or Rod Laver or pick a num- name saying, well, you know, i got to have my three people or I can't play. I mean, so the top players are making a ton. And they spend a lot of it on a team. Yeah. You know, they're always thanking their team. Tennis, like golf, is an individual sport. I mean, when's the last time you heard Tiger Woods uh, or, you know, any of the top golfers, Dustin Johnson, when they win a tournament, say, I really want to thank my team, <laughs> you know, because it's the same problem. Yeah, it's, 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 it's sort of an arms race that's bankrupting everybody. Exactly. You know, if everyone thinks you have to, and who knows if you really do have to, they all think they do, and there probably is some marginal benefit, well, I'm sure. that's one of the big arguments on the WTA tour. Can yeah. you have a coach? Yeah. And they have agreed you can have a coach, and yeah. a coach can during come matches, out on yeah, the court yeah. during the match at certain times and coach. Well, that's an added expense that... You know, you decide you want or you don't want. But if I were ranked, let's say I was playing the tour, I was ranked 450, and my goal was to stay on the tour for six or eight years and get to 200 or 150, I couldn't afford to have a coach right. and a trainer and a hitting partner. Why do you need a hitting partner? You get it, grab another player and you you train. Yeah. 
So it, it's, it's changed in that fact. And nobody really wants to deal with that. They want to say, well, you know, 900 people can't play the Pro Tour. It doesn't support that many. No. Period. I, I mean, it's, it's, it's unclear, honestly, that it supports even way less than that because tennis, again, it's so great at making these, these really breakout stars who become big cultural figures. Yeah. Um, and, the, you know, back to, you know, Billie Jean, McEnroe, well, Connors, Serena, whoever you want to name that's just U.S. players, Agassi. Um, but it, there's not necessarily a lot of – because of how individual focus it is and how much attention is on one athlete, you know, during – or two athletes during a Grand Slam final, um, doesn't necessarily – make for a great ensemble cast all the time if, that's, if the results aren't really diluted or well, spread out. Well, you made out. a good point. Take Tissipas from Greece. I mean, yeah. for him to break through, and he's winning a lot of matches. He won Monte Carlo. Yep. I mean, yep. He's winning big, winning big tournaments now. That's a, a totally different thing back in Greece. Take a better example, the woman who won the French from Poland. Yeah, Iga, yeah. yeah. I mean, they just had a revolution in Poland with tennis now. I mean, yeah. I mean it's remarkable. So these named stars can create you know, tremendous uh, interest in the local co- uh, countries. Yeah, not for sure. You mentioned, alluded to Djokovic's organization is calling the PTPA, mm-hmm. the Professional Tennis Players Association, just sort of most of the same words as ATP, just in a different order. Um, I'm curious what you think of, of the sort of, you know, you sort of referred to it as unscrambling the egg, basically, of trying to get the, the tours separated. And, and he wants to have them on a more independent, the players on a more independent footing, doesn't think that the... Uh, the shared, you know, three and three on the board structure works. He was sort of, you know, behind the scenes, I think, pushing for the ouster of Chris Kermode, who was the previous right. uh, previous uh, chairman of the ATP, although not really clear how much that was actually what Kermode was doing and how much of that was just structure uh, frustration with the structure of the tour. Oh, no, but what really, yeah. what really happened there, yeah. he wasn't fired. They yeah. just didn't, didn't extend renew, it. Yeah. They didn't renew. And the reason they didn't is because you had a 3-3 vote yeah. and to extend and extend his contract. And under the rules of the ATP Tour, you have to have a 4-2 majority. You have to have a super majority for some of the major decisions. Well, if both are voting in blocks, yeah. you never get to 4-2. Right. So his his contract but the player block ran was in, out. But the player block was against him. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So... I, I, anyway, I'm just I'm just wondering what you think of of Djokovic as you mentioned. Well, you mentioned some sort of the player the player leaders. Djokovic is number one. It's still <laughs> number one in the, in the ranking. Is still going for this all time slam record. He's in that yeah. conversation. At, I think he's at 18 now, or maybe 19. I think 18. Using a lot of his energy and time on focusing on these sort of backroom sort of issues. Do you think that's a? Do you think that he's onto anything? Do you think it's a, it's a, it's a, well, it's a sort of hopeless endeavor? What do you, what do you think of what he's doing? First of all, Djokovic in the sport, you know, it's an individual sport. Yeah. So if you're the number one player, I mean, if you, let me put it this way. If everybody's playing their best in a week, I think Djokovic is the best player by about 20%. I agree. Yeah. I really believe that. So he has the opportunity to be a great leader and a strong voice. The problem is, in my opinion right now, the way he wants to, to lead it, to lead the players is going to cause another uh, more confusion and more dilution because I think right now the players win most of the key votes on the tour. They're winning about 70%. First of all, the three representatives over against them are tournaments. And the tournaments, at the end of the day, tend to favor the players because they want them to play their tournaments. There's an internal conflict there. So they're not three totally outside of the sport objective people voting. So I think the players, let's play it out. Tomorrow, they had a very strong players-only union back. Djokovic is, I mean, he's the president. Okay. Now, what happens? The tournaments immediately organize a tournament directors association. Hmm. So then you have what you have in football, basketball, and baseball. you got a collective bargaining agreement right. for sports antitrust in America. 
Well, what does that mean? Well, it means the tournaments are going to be in a fist as, as the owners. The players are going to be in a fist. You've got two associations. You negotiate a CBA every five years. And they clash, well, yeah. Well, guess what? If I'm in the owner's side of it, I've been, you know, I've been a player's guy all my life, but I run a tournament, so I see both. If I've got $500 million behind me in all the tournaments, and I've got, on the other side, 200 players, but only 10 or 12 really matter in the star category, I don't like those odds if I'm a player. Yeah. So, I, so it is the classic case, be careful what you wish for, because, yeah. because you don't want a really strong tournament director's association that says, hey, wait a minute, you're going to do that? Don't play in the event. And everybody says, well, you know, the players, the, the tournaments have to have the players. That is true, but the only choice the players have is to strike. Yeah. And I don't see, you know, the top 10 or 15 players striking when they're making $20, 30000000 million a year. I don't either. And that, that, that really is what the, that's sort of calling their bluff and saying that's the ultimate you know, bargaining power you have is the, as a labor side of the thing. It's the ability to, to strike. And I've wondered that, I've thought about that too with unintended consequences. If they, um, I, I understand the idea of, you know, unions working in, in lots of contexts, but the unintended consequences, I think they wouldn't, there were a bunch they wouldn't like. I was even thinking just along the lines of like, you know, what all the disciplinary things that are built into various CBAs and the other leagues, you know, sure. like you've seen, like I've watched Benoit Pair for like tank, you know, multitudes of matches this year and just be generally miserable on court and, and being, you know, he would get suspended in a normal sport, but I feel like in the, that, AT, yeah. in the ATP, they're not suspending anybody for almost anything on court or off court these days um, because, you know, they're representing the players too. And they're not really, you know, laying down the law in a but meaningful would, way. As an alternative to what you asked, yeah. I would rather see a guy like Djokovic, become an outstanding leader in the sport and try to get better, stronger representation on that board and, and really elect three. First of all, it takes a lot of time. And, you know, when you say you're going to start a new player association, that means you got to have hundreds of meetings. You know, yeah. players go on in social media and they quote something on the social media. And they think that's, you know, yeah. that's a meeting. That's not a meeting. No. That's just somebody talking about what he likes and people listen to it and the press loves it if Djokovic blasts the ATP tour. You know that's press, but that doesn't mean anything. I think I think the press, at least speaking for myself as a collective press, like I think that I think that they're just sort of confused because there's it's we recognize it's being very amorphous. You know, they say it's yeah. an organization, but there's no employees, there's no there's no office, there's no you know I don't know logo or branding or anything else that you would normally yeah. want. It's sort of just yeah, like you said, sort of a collection of social media posts most of the time, and that's not that's not how you know sausage gets made on any level. Um, do you think that sort of wrap up with sort of a, a more overarching thing? Do you think all these sorts of you know uh, snags or whatever you want to call them that we talked about in the sport and all these structural difficulties? Do you think they meaningfully need to to heal themselves or improve for to and unite and coalesce for the sport to get better? And do you think that will happen, or do you think it's just things are so entrenched that it's? Uh, no, I think, I think gradually over time it will more and more come together because the really uh, the smart guys in the sport on both sides will get stronger in trying to put. I mean, I think Gaudenzi, let's take an example, Gaudenzi running the ATP Tour, and let's take a, a new example, Moreton, France. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have a lot more in common than they've ever had before. And if they, I, I think that will push them. And Steve Simon is very bright, very, you know, You've got good leadership now at the top of the tours. That really helps. If you get good leadership with the slams, you got a chance. And I'm told yeah. Michael Douse is doing a great job for the U.S. Open. I don't, I'm not involved with that much, so I'm not yeah. sure. 
but certainly did a hell of a job last year when they were right in the middle of the pandemic and he ran the Open three weeks in, in uh, New York. I don't know how they ever got it done, but yeah. they did. And so if you get, again, it all comes down to people. If you get good leadership on both sides, the logic is to move them together. But logic will only prevail if you have good, strong people. Yeah. And thank you for all your insights and everything here at all. Appreciate Pleasure. it. Thank you for your time. And uh, look forward to seeing you around when hopefully we get back to going to tournaments like the old days. Yeah, I hope to see you at the French or Wimbledon yeah, for sure. That'd be good. Okay. Thank you very much. Cheers. So thank you very much, Donald, for your time. And thank you to you all for listening. And since it's our first main feed episode of the month of May, we have a whole lot more thanking to do. So thanks to our new Patreon patrons since our last show, who are Johan Vesterlund and Deepa Mokshagundam. And then thank you to our on-tour backers we thank on the first show of each month, who are Deepa Mokshagundam, Ido Polak, Barry Wagner, Anne Worcester, Andrew Meyer, Nick Sicardi, Mallory Mappas-Couture, Laura Vergani, Aluko Hope, David Ebersoff, Ken Solomon, Kathleen Sharkey, Stephen Tidings, Danielle Hartzell, Horatio Silva, Colin Mary, Reginald Basile, Misa Miyagawa, Annie Kim, Russell Baker, J.B. Wogan, Carol Allen, Jillian Dobson, Helene DeWitt, Andrew, The Body Serve Podcast, Andrew Eccles, Stephanie Chow, Joy Katz, Greer Millard, Brett Halsey, Ava Marshalkova, John Fisher, Erica Jane Glamgoles, Rumdwalv Wong, Harish, Brian Rolick, Elise Panich, Kate S., Jeremy Blackstock, Dermot Harkin, and Lori Porter. <sighs> and then our Slam Champ backers, who we thank every show, Susanna W., Sean Mulroy, Mary Carrillo, Leah Williams, Liz Kendall, Jonathan Weinbaum, John Simeon, James Hindle, Audrey Wellens, Antonio Maycumber, Anna Valinder, and Timothy Liu. And our GOAT backers, last but most of all, Mike, Nicole Copeland, Pam Shriver, and J.O.D. That's it for us. We'll see y'all soon. Arrivederci. Enjoy Rome. Bye, guys. Bye.